Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with George Lucas, founder and principal owner of Lucas Law. George, welcome. Good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me. Okay. It's our pleasure. We're excited to have you today. George, your, your practice specializes in helping families that have suffered catastrophic in, injury, medical malpractice, and particularly drug prescription medication overdose. Tell us what you've witnessed as the opioid epidemic has evolved over the course of the past 10 years. What we have seen is over the last 10 years, an ever-increasing number of families who have lost a loved one to the opiate epidemic. They've lost somebody. Somebody died because of an accidental overdose from opiates, narcotics. Our first case was about 10 years ago, and it involved a person who had taken too many and their family doctor overprescribed for a period of oh, at least 15 years. And it destroyed her entire family. And uh, we ended up suing the doctor. She had become addicted. And uh, we won the case. And from there, we were contacted by people who were not just addicted, but addicted and then had died. And we started taking those cases. And it cases, and it has progressed to the point that today 80% of our practice is uh, wrongful death cases from people who have died from drug overdoses, prescription opiate drug overdoses. So how do you know that you're being wrongfully prescribed? You know, it's ingrained in us, I guess, as Americans, that you go to the doctor, and the doctor's always right, they're going to give you a prescription. And so how do you know? Well, you know, if I may backtrack, what I forgot to tell you was the leading cause of accidental death during that time period and today is overdose from prescription medications, not automobile and truck accidents any longer. Uh, today, it may be heroin and fentanyl because of, the, of uh, the microscope under which this opiate epidemic has been placed and the help that's coming in finally. But I would say to families who, who need help, be aware that these drugs are dangerous. They're dangerous by definition. The federal government has always 
controlled them. They're called controlled substances for a reason, because they are dangerous. If you take uh, one extra blood pressure pill, you're going to be okay. If you take these prescription narcotics incorrectly, you may die. That's called a narrow therapeutic index, meaning if you don't take them correctly, you could die. So for the families who have adolescents, or even for people who are being prescribed pain, there's a, an old adage that says, start low and go slow. And I would tell them that when you go to your doctor and they write you a prescription for something powerful and give you a great number for some condition that may only be painful for a few days or more, uh, do I really need Percodan or Vicodin? Can I take Motrin, aspirin, or Tylenol for this? If not, well, how about something less powerful? How about a Tylenol with codeine or um, something that's not as powerful as the big guns, Percocets or Vicodins? Um, so the question becomes, do I really need these pain medicines? Do I really want my child, for instance, exposed to these powerful medicines? Because once the body is exposed to them, it records, every cell in the body, especially the brain, records the effect of these drugs on the body, which is if it's pain, oh, it makes pain feel better. If it's an emotional crisis, all of a sudden the body wants to make that pain from the emotion go away. And the body remembers that those pain pills made that physical and emotional pain go away. And the body is commanded to want pain pills to make the pain go away. So that's what a family has to remember when they're faced with being treated for pain, I believe. So <clears throat> um, very quickly they can get addicted. So it's very dangerous. Um, what Can you give some general guidelines for a, uh, a family for <clears throat> their, uh, for their physicians in, in terms of just as a rule of thumb? When would there, should an eyebrow go up over prescription and being overprescribed? Any guidelines for that, George? Well, uh, what we do here is traditionally, uh, much like a coroner, un un unfortunately, uh, when you read a book, you know, we start with the ending. We know what the ending is, that somebody has died, and we work backwards through the book to find out what happened. And so, anecdotally, we can figure out how people ended up dying and try to reverse the process and say, what can we do on the front end? And what we do in, in learning how somebody died is uh, we have learned that there are laws on the books in the state of Ohio that have been in place since 1996. These laws are called prescribing laws. And the laws are for doctors. And they say, if a doctor is going to prescribe in the state of Ohio for chronic pain, that means pain that's going to last for three months or more, they must follow these steps. There are laws on how to prescribe. And there's a disjunctive there, an or. If you're going to prescribe for more than three months for chronic pain or in amounts that are not usually prescribed, you must follow these steps. So if you go to the emergency room and you get treated for a broken ankle or, you know, a sprain, and they give you a couple days' worth and tell you to go to your doctor, uh, that's fine. If they give you 
three-month supply in the emergency room or a family doctor gives you a three-month supply of a powerful drug and sends you to the orthopedist who rightfully should be treating it, that should raise an eyebrow. We start there with those laws. For instance, the doctor who wishes to prescribe chronically over three months to start treating for pain must obtain all prior records of the patient. The Ohio State Medical Board starts with the assumption that people who are addicted may be trying to get these drugs instead of legitimate pain patients. And so whoever prescribes them must be vigilant in making sure they're not lying because they're drug seekers versus actual true pain patients that need to relieve pain. And that's where the medical board starts, and they've written it in their model policies, etc. Okay. So um, for chronic pain, you've got the statutes, you've got the laws in place. What about non-chronic? Most of, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of addiction that happens because somebody goes to the dentist, has their wisdom teeth pulled, and here, take this. For example, and and uh, you know it goes on and on the, the type of uh, prescriptions that are written that that are not in a chronic pain situation. So, what laws do you have to back you up there? None, none of which I am aware. There's none, none. That goes back to uh, standard of care, which is uh, just case law through the years, an expert physician's opinion, or what the recognized standard of medical care is in the community, um, and there there is. No law that applies to that. So you have to rely upon what's what's you know prudent, I guess, and uh, what has been set as standards out there. But nothing hard and fast. It seems like that would be an opening for a law. It seems as though some legislation, maybe it seems as though there'd be an opportunity there. Well, I think no? it's informed consent. I think a, a family should be informed. Uh, of what can happen if their adolescent or, or child or youth is prescribed these drugs, or even adults, if mm -hmm. they're to be prescribed these drugs. And we just talked about that. Start low, go slow, be aware. The laws that I just mentioned for chronic pain treatment do have an informed consent requirement where the doctor must tell the patient, hey, we're going to start you on these medicines. Uh, instead of surgery, for instance, or you can choose. But you have to be aware of the side effect of these drugs. They can cause addiction, which is a primary disease, permanent, progressive, and fatal if left untreated. And we're going to monitor you to make sure that this side effect doesn't occur. And if it does, by the way, the law says that I must monitor you for this side effect. And if it does occur, I must consult with an addictionologist to help, with, help you deal with it right away. Because okay. if there isn't intervention, you could die. Yeah. So now let's talk about um, a typical case. The, the, what would, can you describe, George, for us, for our listeners, what your typical case that you're faced with? The typical case is when a patient is treated by a doctor with these powerful drugs 
and it continues over a prolonged period of time. The laws are not followed. followed. The patient will take more and more and in increasing dosages to overcome the physical dependency where they need more to have the same effect of the medicine. And then usually the doctor will combine it, and this is very important, with another drug that works with the narcotic to help slow down the body's ability to breathe. And eventually um, they don't wake up because their respiratory system failed and they couldn't breathe and they died. That's the type of case we usually see. So are most of your cases chronic? Yes. They are? Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. And what we do is look at these laws and apply them. Did the physician talk to the patient about alternatives? Did the physician actually get the prior records and see, was this patient um, an addict before they came to them? Is there evidence of alcoholism and or addiction or detox in those records uh, that would warn them that we have a problem patient here. We just can't start treating with narcotics. We see that a lot, where they don't bother to get those medical records and learn the true history, because the addict will see this doctor and lie. The addict will go to any lengths to get this drug, including not telling them that they have a problem with these pills so that they can get the pills. Yeah. So it seems as though that would apply to any addict, not just those that are prescribed for chronic pain, but really anyone. Yes. Uh, some of the other laws that are pl applicable now when, when the doctor prescribes are they have to take a urine drug screen uh, to start to make sure they're not lying. You know, is there, uh, are there illegal drugs in their urine? Marijuana, heroin, who knows? Then um, they should not prescribe prescription drugs at all. After they start treating with these drugs, the law requires urine drug screens. A, to make sure that they're being taken and not diverted, put on the street and sold. B, to make sure that they're not being overutilized. In other words, if the drug, like a Percocet, isn't in their urine, then what is going on? Are they taking too much? A sign of addiction. A sign to the doctor that they need to intervene and get help for this patient. Another requirement of the law is ORS reporting. The Ohio Automated Prescription Reporting Service. It's a database maintained by the Ohio State Board of Pharmacy that keeps track of every controlled substance dispensed by a pharmacy in the state of Ohio. For every narcotic prescription filled by you, me, anybody in the state of Ohio, it's in that database. And the doctor or pharmacist can pull it up and is required now to pull it up when writing a prescription for a narcotic or filling a prescription for a narcotic. And the doctor is required to look at it and see if there's evidence of a problem. Doctor shopping. Did the patient go to five doctors in the previous year and get different types of drugs? That's a sign of addiction. And they need to be aware of that and not prescribe and get the patient help.
Any other laws that come into play here? Boy, you, the, I, I guess the, the big one, let me just back up a little bit. The big one that you alluded to, I'm not sure that I understand it, so I want to go back to it for a second, is some requirement for the physicians to look at the, their, uh, their patients' medical records and medical history to determine whether or not they have been treated for addiction or whether there's any addiction in the past prior to them prescribing opioids? Yes, it's basically a, a part of what should naturally happen uh, in any doctor's appointment where the doctor is going to prescribe treatment, and that is doing a risk assessment. You know, if I'm going to prescribe an antibiotic, uh, oh, by the way, are you allergic to any antibiotics? Uh, that's going to determine how I prescribe to treat your infection. Uh, same thing, if I'm going to prescribe a narcotic to you, I need to know, are you allergic to this narcotic? Uh, is there any history of alcoholism or drug addiction in your family? How about you? And it begins there, and then the law requires the other items that we shortly discuss because there's more uh, in doing a risk assessment and making sure this patient, number one, is a candidate for the treatment of this prescription narcotic. And number two, what's the likelihood that they're going to have an adverse reaction, meaning addiction, that's going to take off and overtake this person's life. Okay. So, and the other thing that you mentioned is uh, drug testing, testing their urine. Um, is this a requirement or a just a, you know, best practice that is recommended for physicians? Great question. Uh, it is now uh, a law that if you're going to treat chronically over long term, that you uh, must take a urine drug screen. And... I believe the law also states, and I state I believe is what I say because I know that the law has recently gotten some teeth behind it, uh, where it was best practice, recommended by the Ohio State Medical Board. But now I believe that if doctors going to treat over time, that the physician must intermittently or periodically check the urine as we talked about before, to make sure there's no drug diversion or overutilization that the patient is becoming out of control and cannot or can no longer take the drugs as prescribed. It's a sign of addiction. That would seem to be just a very, very, uh, a great practice and a great law uh, because so many times with an addict, no one knows. They're so good at um, deceiving everyone around them, everyone, even the closest people to them. So having that in place is really, as I see it, just a, just a great measure, not to editorialize here. But well, I mean, there's an old saying, uh, a law, especially a law that uh, isn't med found in medicine, is nothing more than the codification of an existing standard of care. So uh, this notion of, of having to take urine drug screens to protect the patient, um, it's something that has been known for a long time that was put into place to help patients. And you're right about the lying. 
and doctors and pharmacists are in a superior position of medical and pharmaceutical knowledge. They know this. They are the ones who are supposed to be aware of this concept that people who are addicted or becoming addicted, this disease makes them lie. It makes them do the exact opposite of their moral compass. That's one of the requirements to be diagnosed with addiction. So they're in a superior position of knowledge to know this, more so than any parent of a child or a youth or the person taking the drugs, especially if they're affected by addiction, and they're supposed to apply that knowledge and monitor patients for lying. Yeah, so that brings about a, a good question. Who's responsible for that? At the end of the day, who's more responsible? Is it your pharmacist or is it the physician? Well, that is a great question. First of all, I get this question. Who's responsible? The physician, the pharmacist, or the patient? And the medical experts will first tell you that the patient is under a mental disability. Drug addiction or alcoholism are mental illnesses. They are diseases. I challenge any medical healthcare person to say differently or pharmacy person. It's a, a disease and they are under a mental incapacity. They cannot make this decision on their own. There's no such thing as willpower. I want to stay away from this. They cannot control themselves. It's a compulsion and a craving that they cannot control. It's a disease. It is a disease. It's not choice. Now, as we shift from the patient's responsibility to the physician and the pharmacist, my first case, I didn't sue the pharmacies. I didn't know any better. The theories of legal liability have evolved over the last 10 years. We would sue the doctors, but then we learned on the basis of these laws that I've talked about, but then we realized as a practicing pharmacist myself, formerly, I thought, wait a minute, pharmacists have so much information at hand that the doctor doesn't have. Pharmacists are the second most educated medical professionals. They are educated on all these disease states, all of the drugs. What happens when you combine these drugs for these disease states? And what are the side effects of all of them? And there's a federal law that charges pharmacists with the duty to look at each prescription and determine in if that prescription could be harmful to the patient in light of all the other prescriptions they're taking. The doctor may not know that the patient is seeing other doctors, but the pharmacist will, especially because of the database. First, they have a database of all drugs filled, so they'll know what's in that history. Some pharmacies, like the big chain drugstores, are interconnected through all of their pharmacies, so they can see if this patient went to one of their pharmacies in another state or across town. And they have this database to look at. And, and so the pharmacist must apply this knowledge, and they know how powerful these drugs are. They know if they typically have gotten 1,000 Percocets in their order for the last 10 years, but now, in the last year or two, they're getting 10,000 Percocets in their store. They know who the players are, the pill mills, the doctors who are unscrupulously prescribing narcotics that shouldn't. They know if a patient walks in who's 24 years old and has never been prescribed methadone 
how dangerous that drug is when you started. And even though only 2% of pain prescriptions are for methadone, 30% of deaths are from methadone. And they are charged by their own policies to interact, intercede with this patient and educate them. And yet they don't do that. So over the last uh, 10 years, we've finally learned that pharmacies are just as culpable in certain situations as physicians. The thing that's missing in what we talked about, we talked about the patient, we talked about the doctor, the pharmacy. Well, what about the manufacturer? What about the pharmaceutical manufacturers who have been marketing these drugs and putting them on the streets in numbers never seen before? That's the question that remains unanswered, and I'm shocked that our government hasn't done more to protect us. Okay, let's get to the heart of the matter as far as your practice is concerned. And if you can help us with what constitutes a wrongful death in overdose cases, can you put it in layman's terms for our listening audience? Yes. uh, The typical case is we will get a call from someone who lost a loved one to an overdose, and we will investigate by law in Ohio a wrongful death case. And a wrongful death case is a creature of statute, what we say in the law. It is a, a law whereby the legislators have said, hey, uh, you all have lost a loved one. There's natural harm that flows from that. And so the next of kin are permitted to file a lawsuit for the loss that they've sustained from losing a loved one. So a child that's lost a mom or a dad, for instance, and we see that in many of our cases, we file a wrongful death case, meaning this child has lost a parent. The other parent will usually be the, uh, the head of the estate and open an estate so that we can file a lawsuit uh, to make the claim for the economic loss of having a mother to raise this child. And that's a wrongful death case, whether it's a mother or father or a parent who's lost a son or a daughter. Uh, a sibling who's lost a sister. So a wrongful death case is um, a law that allows next of kin to file a lawsuit for what they believe is to be the death of a loved one because of a wrong. And in these cases, from overprescribing of narcotics. Okay. Now, there's also a called a medical malpractice or survival statute. So the wrongful death case, a family has two years from the date of death to file that in their behalf for the family and their loss. But the law has created something called a survivorship action where the person that died, the law presumes that that person that died, their cause of action, their right to file a lawsuit survives them. Thus, survivorship action. So we also file a lawsuit for the person that died believe it or not. It's called a survival action. So we will file a wrongful death action and a survival action for the conscious pain and suffering and the medical bills, for instance, for the person who died. And the question is, what pain and suffering could they have had from, you know, uh, dying in the middle of the night while they were sleeping? No. What we have identified is this disease of addiction is uh, described by many who are lost in addiction 
as a hole in their soul, a vicious cycle every day that they want to stop, but they can't. And that's torment. That's daily torment, and that is pain and suffering. And so we file survivorship actions for the person who died for being treated incorrectly and allowing this disease to eat them up and cause their death. So we file for the family that lost a loved one, lived through that, and we file for the patient who died and didn't get the proper medical care, which caused them to suffer and die as well. So for those lawsuits, is there a window, a two-year window? Yes, a one-year window one year. for medical one year after death. for survivorship action, mm-hmm. a two-year window for a wrongful death action for the family members. Okay. So, George, what advice can you share with our listeners to protect themselves and their family members from opioid addiction, overdose situations based upon all that you've learned over the course of this these last 10 years? You know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty. I believe that that's true. Um, and I'll bet you've learned a lot of lessons that families could uh, put to good use to make sure their family members are safe. Can you share some of those? Awareness. Become educated. We talked a little bit about pre, uh, what happens before the prescription comes. When you're presented with how should we, what type of treatment should we choose for our child or for myself? And be aware how dangerous narcotics are. Start low and go slow. Uh, Try to go without narcotics if you can, because once the body receives those drugs, um, the mind makes an imprint of it and wants more. That's pre-post. A patient or a loved one, a family member who is getting these drugs, they have to monitor, just like the doctor would, for the adverse effects of these drugs. If the monitor for is the patient becoming out of control, the red flags of addiction, are they going through the prescription more quickly? If so, call the doctor and tell them. And if the doctor tells you that, hey, they're HIPAA laws, I can't talk to you. No. You write it in a letter and you send it to that doctor because that has to be put into the medical record and they'll be called on the carpet for it later, God forbid, if something happens to that loved one. So you look for these red flags that there's a problem. So wait, let's go back to the letter. So that letter specifically requests information from them? And I do want to go back to this because this is important. How do we help people whose loved one yep. is taking these medications? Uh, but yes, we have a case right now that we're investigating. Uh, we have two, and it's scary. Parents whose children have just turned 18 and the doctor will no longer talk to them about their child's medical care or the drugs they're taking. And the parents see things at home, that the kids are out of it, the kids are out of control, and the doctor won't talk to me. And the parents sent a letter to the Ohio State Medical Medical Board saying, I know that my kid's not perfect, but I've seen things that are scaring me, and I'm wondering if it's from the drugs. I'm trying to talk to his doctor, and the doctor won't talk to me. I need help. I'm afraid something's going to happen to my son. This was on a Friday. 
And finally, the doctor called and said, okay, bring him in Monday and we'll start to wean him from the medication. And the boy died Sunday, okay? That's a cry for help that went unnoticed until she put it in writing to the doctor and the Ohio State Medical Board. Because a doctor can always say, I don't remember that. I don't remember a call. No, they never contacted me. But if it's in the medical record, they must act. They can no longer deny it. And you will get action. More likely than not, you'll get action. So I always say, put it in writing. Document it. Most importantly, educate yourself. If you are going to be put on these narcotics, find out what the dangers are. You're going to find out that, you know, if you or your loved one are snoring uncontrollably, that is means that your ability to breathe is being shut off. You are about to, ready to overdose. I've seen more clients come in telling me, and we say, well, what happened on the night that he overdosed or she overdosed? Well, I heard this snoring that I hadn't heard before. Well, didn't the doctor tell you that that's a sign of impending overdose and you needed to call 911 or thank God nowadays give naloxone to bring them out of it? No, they're, they're not being informed of these dangers, of these side effects that they have to be aware of. So they need to ask their doctor, what should I be aware of, of these powerful drugs, that the red flags that I'm either getting addicted or that something bad may be happening to me? Loud snoring. Loud snoring. Wow. Signs of addiction. Okay, monitor yourself or your loved one. Um, oh, the dog ate ate my prescription. I left my prescription in the car and somebody took it from my car. It means they're using too many and coming up with excuses to get more. That's out of control. They're taking too many. They can no longer take it as prescribed. That's a sign of addiction. Secrets. They don't want you to go with them to the doctor's office. They don't want you to go with them to the pharmacy. They're hiding these things. That's a form of isolation. That's the disease, actually, of addiction telling the person who has the disease, hey, we don't want others to find out what we're doing because they may stop us. And the person has now a mental illness that they're hiding what they're doing so they can get more and more. So isolation, secrets. Another red flag is irritability. You know, your loved one who's nice as the day is long, is becoming irritable, discontent for no good reason, and just lashing out, especially when they're about to run out of their medicine, or when they're talking to the doctor to get more, or when they come home with the prescription and they're already worried about getting the next prescription. Um, If they've run out of their prescription and they're trying to get it from other people, other family members, or worse yet, buying it off the street, call your doctor. Call the doctor of the patient and tell them, hey, my loved one's out of control. If they're excessively drowsy at home, snoring, um, out of it, what they call nodding, you know, their heads falling down because they're in a daze, you know, almost drugged, they are drugged. That's too much medication. Something needs to be done. Those are red flags that should turn into cries for help. Really good advice.
You've had, George, a lot of experience uh, with cases uh, dealing with opioid overdose and opioid addiction. Is there any legislation, any ideas that you might be able to share with us about legislation that you think would be particularly effective in help fighting this? I think Ohio is a front runner in the laws that they've had in place since 1996 to uh, prevent addiction with these drugs or to help those who have addiction. I think the single most important thing that we could do right now is get the Ohio State Medical Board to punish and hold accountable these doctors that have been over-prescribing over and causing deaths. I know of a doctor in the greater, greater Cleveland area that has caused six, if not seven, deaths from overprescribing, and he still has his license and is practicing every day. And we're waiting for the next. I know of a Kentucky doctor, six or seven deaths. He did lose his license. They gave it back to him, and we filed a lawsuit for two deaths down there. And the insurance company has been fighting us for three years for these deaths. And the Ohio State Medical Board is continuing to let that Kentucky doctor practice in Ohio. And they've given him back his license in Kentucky after seven deaths. How is that? You know, and I know, that they're going to do the same thing and cause another death. Are they reformed? I've not seen one doctor out of the dozens that we have sued, or pharmacists for that matter, that has been reprimanded or had their license suspended. Not one. And I would tell you that that is something that should be addressed, number one. Number two, for the legislation, there is also a law that says if doctors violate these standards, these laws on how to prescribe narcotics. It is evidence of substandard medical care, and there will be a hearing, and they can lose their licenses to practice medicine. I do not know of a single time where a doctor has been held accountable under that law. We have proven over and over again that doctors are violating this law and not prescribing according to the laws in Ohio. So whose job is it to follow through on that and hold them accountable? The Ohio State Medical Board, I think, is the for first and foremost. They, they regulate their own industry, their own profession. Okay. So what should our listeners know about how they might be able to make a difference in the opioid epidemic? Education, awareness talking among each other and other families. I, I would imagine that every family, if not person, knows of somebody who's suffering from drug addiction to opiates nowadays. So they need to talk to one another and keep one another abreast of how dangerous these things are. So public awareness and personal awareness. And We've been successful in getting hospitals to put policies and procedures in place. And I think the same applies to the uh, local professional associations, whether it's for internal medicine, family practice, surgery, 
for those who have private practices. The hospitals are now trying to educate the doctors, that medical personnel, nursing personnel, on how to safely prescribe and treat patients and identify the problems with these drugs. We now have to get it into the private professional groups as well and educate them the same as the hospitals are doing in-house. Excellent. And just to underscore one of the points that you made there, talking, talking to one another, talk about it. The stigma attached to this addiction has to go away. The stigma has to be something left in the past because this this is it, the word is thrown around, but it's still not even used enough. This is an epidemic. You know, I was going to say the word stigma and interrupt you right when you said the word stigma. It jumped in my head. I think many people still have the idea of the alcoholic from the Andy Griffith show, from those who are Otis. able to remember Otis uh, every day in the dry-up cells, you know, drying up, or the drunk under the bridge with the trench coat and the bottle wrapped in the bag. That's the idea they have of people who have a problem. And it's a disease. And it's been a disease since the 30s. Medicine has, in Ohio, has determined that it's been a disease since then. And we have to talk and educate one another and come out of the dark ages that this is not a stigma. This is a real disease. It's a mental illness that grabs people and never lets go. It's progressive. You know, I listened to The Corner, and you do excellent work. I listened to The Corner podcast of the Cuyahoga County Corner. And he Dr. said... Dr. Gilson. Yes. Yeah. He said people who are in prison that get out think that they could take as much of these drugs as before they went in, even after they were dry for a period of time. There's also another factor at play, and that's called the progressive nature of this disease. Even if a patient or a person has not been taking these for months, the disease of addiction that has been activated continues progressively so that when they take another drug, the disease is telling them to take more, like what they took before. So it's not just a habit. It's a mental compulsion to take more than what they were taking before. And that results in death because they take more automatically over time, regardless of how long they've been able to abstain or uh, not continue with medical therapy. This stigma has to be treated first and foremost. Education and awareness, public awareness. Right. Well, George, that was great. Um, I just wonder, before we wrap things up, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? If the pills can kill, do not fill. Many people believe that the pharmacist must fill a prescription that's presented to them. No, they have the power and the duty, the legal obligation not to fill a prescription if it's dangerous. And the same thing with the doctor. If it's dangerous, they're not required to give a prescription. And a patient who's getting them or a family member who sees it can remind the physician or the pharmacist, look, there's no reason that you must give this. Please stop. Because they're, if the pills can kill, always remember that. Do not fill. Intervene and help 
If you think there's a problem, go to the Ohio State Board of Pharmacy. You'll see a wonderful video on the red flags of drug addiction. And they may have it for the pharmacist, for the patient who comes to the counter and uses words like, oh, I want the brand drug, or I want this dilaudid. That's a red flag that this person is very expert at getting drugs. There are wonderful tips on there for the person who has a problem, and it could help educate family members too if their loved one has a problem. Bring it to the attention of the pharmacist and the doctor and put it in writing. Very good. Thank you, George. Thank you. And I wish you well. Thanks and very much. Any regrets about the loss of your son between us? Thank you. We've been visiting today with George Lucas, founder and principal owner of Lucas Law, a law firm that specializes in helping families of overdose victims. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.